Welcome to Roto Underworld Radio. I am broadcasting from my parents' bedroom. We did multiple shows last year from my parents' bedroom, and I believe there will be multiple shows this year from my parents' bedroom, but I am not calling in from my parents' bedroom landline. I brought my microphone with me to Maine because I know that the podcast is very important to Roto Underworld. We've weaned you off the underground sound. You now appreciate the crystal clear stereo signal emanating from playerprofiler.com. So I'm here with my family and my parents eating meals and relaxing, and the conversations naturally turn to politics, and I realize, wow, I haven't talked to anyone about politics in a long time. I haven't thought about it in a long time. I actually do not have well-formed opinions about these candidates. Clearly, my parents do. It's something they obsess over. I do not. I don't think I've ever brought up the name Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump on this podcast. And I don't plan to because I am apolitical. Many people treat politics like sports. They pick a side and then they become very strident in their opinions. They want one side to win, just like they want their favorite sports team to win. And when you hear the supporters of political candidates talk and you hear political pundits talk on television, you could swap out some of the words and they would sound exactly like sports analysts and sports fans. When an election is imminent, it inspires the same visceral response as if an important sports game were imminent. You have the same biases in play. It's fascinating. I think that's why political talk and sports talk dominate the airwaves. It allows supporters and analysts to stake out sides and argue vehemently over what often amounts to small issues. Minor disagreements become deal breakers. And you see this in sports as well. It's very similar. I lived in Washington, D.C. for 10 years and spending some time working with government as a contractor and as a government employee, I walked away with one fundamental truth stashed in my back pocket, that if you're looking for efficiency, government is not the place to find it. And if you go to playerprofiler.com, you're going to see a prominent panel of every player page includes efficiency metrics. So I am clearly someone with an affinity for efficiency. And if I have an affinity for efficiency, I am not going to have an affinity for government. I think everyone understands this choice. When you choose to bring in government, you're sacrificing efficiency. We see this now with DFS. So because neither of these candidates talk much about efficiency, I just lose interest. So that's how I became disengaged from the political world. And I say all of that. I lay out my background as a political agnostic because I will say that as these conversations are happening around me at the dinner table and on the hike, I realized, wow, I'm going to miss President Obama. I, again, I hadn't thought about him. I never think about President Obama. But then I realized, wow, that's a really good thing. That's a good thing that I've been able to focus on playerprofiler.com and the sport of football and not think about what the president's doing. Like, that's been really comforting. And I didn't realize it. I'd taken him for granted until now. Until I find myself boxed into these political conversations I can't get out. And I just think, oh, no. Oh, no. I have to devote brain power to this. 
wow, President Obama did me such a service that I never appreciated just allowing me to turn this part of my brain off. So I went online and started watching some YouTube clips of President Obama, and I came across President Obama's Comedians Having Coffee in Cars with Jerry Seinfeld, and it was tremendous. I enjoyed it. I just enjoyed Jerry Seinfeld talking to the president about stuff for 30 minutes. Again, I'm not a Democrat. I never voted for Obama. I have no political affiliation. It's not my area. I am as close to an impartial observer as you're going to find. And I was just enjoying President Obama talking to Jerry Seinfeld and not once thinking about politics while I was absorbing the conversation. It was cool. I didn't think that was possible. And then Jerry Seinfeld asked President Obama the question that made my ears tingle. He said, President Obama, if you could compare being president to a sport, which sport would it be? And President Obama said, being president of the United States of America is very similar to football. And I thought, oh, yes, yes, do tell, do tell, Barack. Sure enough, he had a well-articulated sports take about why being president is very similar to football. He started listing reason after reason after reason, and it was like listening to a sports podcast. I loved it. He said being president is like being the quarterback of a football team because there's a lot of moving parts, and all these moving parts have to act as one. That's a very football concept. You have a lot of specialists in all these different departments, and that's very football. Versatility isn't something that gets talked about very often in football. More often, it's what are you specifically good at and how does that fit within our team structure? And that's very government and very football. And he went on. He said there's emotional decisions that have to be made in the moment and sometimes those decisions are not rational. Whoa, right? Right? How many times have we talked about that concept on this show? It gets even better. He then said, your job is impacted by many random events and outcomes. <laughs> I'm like, wait a second. Does this guy listen to Roto Underworld Radio? <laughs> what? Yes. There's a lot of randomness at play here. Yes. There's a lot of random events in the world <laughs> that impact the president. Yes. There's a lot of random events on the football field. It's an oblong ball being thrown in the air outside among 22 men colliding. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of random events and outcomes. You're going to see some aberrations every now and again, like C.J. Anderson's 2014 second half. And there's a lot at stake with every play, with every decision you make as president. There's a lot at stake, and with every snap of the football there is a lot at stake there's only 16 games every snap really matters more than any given pitch in baseball more than any given play in basketball and there's a lot of eyes watching obama said which is very similar the ratings on football games dwarf the ratings on any given basketball or baseball game and the same is true with the presidency all eyes are watching the decisions the american president makes and finally, the president said, it's unpredictable. You don't know what's going to happen. In the NBA, you're pretty sure either the Cavs or the Warriors are going to win the championship. And sure enough, 
was the Cavs, LeBron. There was no way the Boston Celtics were going to win the world championship last year. But teams that are the equivalent of the Boston Celtics win the Lombardi Trophy often in the NFL. It's the most unpredictable sport, and being president is pretty unpredictable. We can all agree. So the presidency to football analogy struck me, and him laying out that analogy in complete detail solidified my feelings that I will miss Barack Obama. That's the only political take I've ever had of the show. Barack Obama thinks the presidency is similar to football, and for that reason, I'm going to miss him. I think if you're going to bring up politics on a fantasy football show, uh, I think that's an understandable position. I'm biased to people that like football and compare things to football. I I think that's understandable. Yeah. And Chuck Klosterman said something interesting along those same lines on the Mark Marin show. If you'd like to listen to an interesting podcast that's not sports related, I highly recommend the WTF podcast with Mark Marin. He has film directors, he has comedians, he has writers on the show. It's a great, diverse group of interviews. I try to do the same thing with a football diehard show, have a monologue, and then have a single interview. Someone I find interesting in the industry, Mark Marin does the same thing with a comedy-slash-cultural podcast. And he had Chuck Klosterman on, who's a sports writer, wrote a lot for Grantland, and they were talking about culture. And he said that sports are the only unpredictable thing we have left. And that's why even while the NFL is embroiled in controversy after controversy, from Tom Brady and Deflategate, to concussions, to domestic violence, to suicide, High-minded intellectuals continue to be drawn to football. Chuck Klosterman's favorite sport is football, and he's one of the great culture writers in our society. I talked to Steve Almond on the Football Diehards podcast. He's one of the great rock and roll writers, and he's also drawn to football, and the President of the United States is drawn to football. Why is that? Because football is the ultimate visceral experience. The range of emotions that I felt on the Seahawks' final drive against the Patriots a year ago cannot be matched outside of football. Watching Jermaine Curse bounce the ball up in the air five times before converting the catch while laying on his back, only to watch the Seahawks squander the opportunity with an intercepted slant pass on the goal line. I mean, you just don't see this. This is just, it's the highest form of drama. And it brings everyone together. Unlike politics that drives people apart, football brings people together. Football has a lot of problems. And that seems to be the perpetual focus. The problems with football. The problems with football. Against football. The end of football. But nothing else brings people together and makes you feel alive like the sport of football. And again, I understand part of it is because of the brutality behind it. The brutality raises the stakes and enhances the visceral experience, but it inspires and it unifies because whenever I find myself boxed into a political conversation, what do I always do? Talk football. And five minutes later, everyone's political anxieties have melted away. There's value in that. There's a lot of good things that football brings to the table. And on this show, we've talked about a lot of the negative, but I am heavily invested in this sport because there are so many positives as well. And one of my great obsessions is to expose bad fantasy football analysis. 
And this Bad Analysis Expose is brought to you by Apex Fantasy Leagues. Apex is the best place to play seasonal fantasy football for money. With a skill-based format and industry-leading payouts, Apex ensures the best fantasy football players win big. And Apex also offers Dynasty Leagues. So go to apexfantasyleagues.com right now and sign up. And the bad analysis I'm exposing today is this idea that Kirk Cousins is the second coming of Nick Foles. That Kirk Cousins' 2015 season was an aberration just like Nick Foles' 2013 season. My God, man! Bad analysis knows no bounds. I understand that Nick Foles led the NFL in passer rating in 2013. His passer rating was even higher than Peyton Manning's, who had a historic year. How did it happen? Nick Foles posted the best passer rating through a confluence of factors. He benefited from random events and outcomes. The first one was the schedule. The Eagles had the easiest schedule in the NFL in the games that Nick Foles played in 2013. But beyond the schedule, Nick Foles benefited from the league's initiation into a gimmick system. The first year league defenses are initiated into a new offensive gimmick, that is the year that the quarterbacks in those systems post extraordinary fantasy seasons. Nick Foles' 2013 was very similar to Robert Griffin III's 2012. Robert Griffin III came into the league, Washington implemented the read option, and defenses were not ready for it. It took NFL defenses two more seasons to fully adapt to the read option, for defensive players to be wired to recognize the read option and know when and where and how to attack it. Whenever an offensive innovation is unleashed on the NFL, it takes time for defenses to adjust. Chip Kelly unleashed the up-tempo offense on the NFL, and the Eagles led the league in pass plays that year. Every defense they played was playing on their heels. They hadn't seen an offense run plays at the pace the Eagles were running them at. And Nick Foles was able to pick defenses apart because the defensive backs weren't ready for what they were seeing and experiencing. That's the hindsight explanation for Nick Foles' 2013 aberration season. At the time, we didn't appreciate what a competitive advantage an offensive innovation could be for an offense. We didn't appreciate it with Robert Griffin III, and we didn't appreciate it with Nick Foles. But it was. Looking back, Nick Foles' 2013 season was much more similar to Robert Griffin III's 2012 season than it was Kirk Cousins' 2015 season. Kirk Cousins' completion percentage last year was five percentage points higher than the Nick Foles 2013 season. Nick Foles 2013 passer rating was buoyed by the most unsustainable touchdown to interception ratio of my lifetime. Nick Foles 27 touchdowns to two interceptions in 13 games. What? Yeah. Unsustainable. The king of the dropped interception, Nick Foles. That's what happens. It's another reason why we do not heavily tout players with small sample sizes. And that's why we often label players as overvalued when their ADPs skyrocket after less than a full season of NFL production. It's why we temper expectations for Thomas Rawls. Just a handful of games started at the NFL level. And going back to college, Thomas Rawls' resume is thin. And I agree, Kirk Cousins, his resume isn't robust. There aren't multiple seasons of elite efficiency at the NFL level on Kirk Cousins' resume, but no one's touting Kirk Cousins. 
There is no irrational Kirk Cousins exuberance. The only thing you hear about Kirk Cousins is that he's overrated, even though no one's rating him highly. In that case, I'll tout the player. If you're going to dismiss a great season altogether, well, I'll defend you. If you're going to run out and claim best case scenario on a player like Thomas Rawls after a partial season, well, well, I'll recommend tempering expectations. Calling Thomas Rawls the heir to Marshawn Lynch is just as ridiculous as saying that Kirk Cousins is the next Nick Foles. And now we have a buzzard message, and this buzzard message is brought to you by FF Draft Prep. You know the metrics, you know the players you want, what you really need is a draft day command center. And a super intuitive, customizable draft command center does exist in FF Draft Prep. You pick the data points you want to display, and it even helps you anticipate the picks of other owners in your league. And it's also constantly aware of the best available players at every position, and this ensures you won't have any more panic picks, no more bad drafts. FF Draft Prep changes the game. So go to ffdraftprep.com now, use the promo code DIEHARDS and receive 20% off and arm yourself with a tool you need to make fast, intelligent decisions while you're on the clock. Buzzard writes in, are you calling Mike Zimmer a coward? Buy a clue. Buy a clue. Who says buy a clue? Email the show, rotounderworld at gmail.com or tweet us at rotounderworld. What do you think of the guy that says buy a clue? And I imply that Mike Zimmer was not exhibiting the leadership he asks of his players when he slotted in Laquan Treadwell ahead of Charles Johnson on the depth chart. Because bequeathing the starting job to Laquan Treadwell before preseason starts is granting unearned opportunity. And coaches who preach the ultimate meritocracy of the NFL experience then slotting in Laquan Treadwell as a starting receiver on the first team offense, that's hypocritical. And Charles Johnson spoke up. And what happened? The Vikings changed the depth chart. They moved Treadwell the next day to second-team offense and moved Charles Johnson to first-team offense, as they should, to reward the player working hard and making plays in practice for two consecutive years. I like Mike Zimmer. The more I experience Mike Zimmer, the more I like him. Because in response to criticism about Teddy Bridgewater and his arm strength, Mike Zimmer said that there is too much fantasy football in football analysis. It's not just about 40 time and arm strength. He's right. And then the Twitter machine, of course, sprung into action, mocking Mike Zimmer. He doesn't understand what fantasy football even means, man. No one even owns Teddy Bridgewater in fantasy football. Mike Zimmer needs to buy a clue. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about our obsession with measurables. And beyond that, this arbitrary obsession with measurables. Because if we like a player, we'll use those measurables to tout him. And if we don't like a player, if we're biased against him, we'll use the measurables against him. He and I only ask that football analysts implement a consistent use of measurables in their analysis. How hard is that? But you don't see that because the same draftnik drones who dismiss any talk of Laquan Treadwell's 40 time because they have Laquan Treadwell as their number one rookie wide receiver and no one's going to move them off their position even if Laquan Treadwell posts a spark score in the 18th percentile they will not be moved off their position that Laquan Treadwell is the best wide receiver in this class even though it's pretty clear Corey Coleman's a better receiver than Laquan Treadwell doesn't matter I had Laquan Treadwell ranked number one six months ago, and nothing is going to change that. I am intractable. So I give zero credence to the Laquan Treadwell 40 time. But, but, 
I'll be the first one to mention Teddy Bridgewater's arm strength in an argument against Teddy Bridgewater because I never liked Teddy Bridgewater. I had Blake Bortles and Derek Carr ranked ahead of Teddy Bridgewater two years ago, and I will continue to dismiss Teddy Bridgewater as a viable NFL quarterback. And I will constantly highlight his arm strength as one of the reasons why he's not going to make it. But just because Laquan Treadwell isn't fast doesn't mean he can't be a stud receiver in the NFL. He has so many other qualities to focus on. Well, what about all those qualities that Teddy Bridgewater has? Oh, blah, blah, blah. Noodle arm. That is maddening, and that's what Mike Zimmer was objecting to, and I agree with him. Football analysts are so fickle. Look at Kenny Stills. After Kenny Stills' final season with Drew Brees, he's viewed as a big-time playmaker, an efficient downfield weapon. He spends a year with Ryan Tannehill, who possesses a complete inability to push the ball downfield. He plays empty snaps on offense because Ryan Tannehill refuses to target him in the passing game and just peppers Jarvis Landry on four-yard slants. His production from 2014 to 2015 craters. And suddenly a 24-year-old Kenny Stills is fantasy kryptonite, droppable in Dynasty. He doesn't have an ADP in MFL 10s. This is going to be his age 24 season, and in 2014, when he had a legitimate NFL quarterback, his plus 27.7 production premium, that situation agnostic efficiency metric on playerprofiler.com, that was top 10 in the NFL. His yards per target were 11.2. He was making plays in the high-value quadrants of the football field, and even though Most of his targets came in the higher degree of difficulty sections of the football field. He still posted a 75.9% catch rate, third in the NFL in 2014. And now at 24 years old, Kenny Stills is a fantasy football pariah. Why? I am acquiring Kenny Stills in all of my deeper dynasty leagues because I believe that Kenny Stills is next year's Marvin Jones or 2014 Emmanuel Sanders. You buy low now because once he hits free agency in a year, he will probably go to a team that does not have a fearful game manager at quarterback and knows how to utilize a big play deep threat with Kenny Stills skills. Kenny Stills skills. Kenny Stills, he has skills. Speaking of Marvin Jones, I'm reading on Roto World that Marvin Jones is the number one wide receiver for the Lions. Why? Because Golden Tate had two consecutive challenging practices marred by drops. Oh my god! No way! An NFL receiver dropped some balls in practice. This is major news. That's more than enough reason to believe that Marvin Jones is the number one wide receiver for the Detroit Lions. Update your depth charts, everybody! Golden Tate dropped a couple passes. Time to update those depth charts! No! No! Where does this news come from? This is why I'm on vacation. I take my vacation in August because I can't be around this noise. It's depressing. It's demoralizing. Why is it depressing and demoralizing? Because fantasy analysts I respect take blatant speculation to heart. They let nonsense narratives drive their rankings. They let anecdotal gibberish from beat reporters infect their analysis. That's August. And it's a paradox for me because August is when everyone wants maximum fantasy football content. They don't want three shows. They don't want four shows. They don't want five shows. They want six, seven, eight, nine, ten shows in a week. You all have infinite elasticity of demand for fantasy football content. As much as I put out there, you will consume and you will be ravenous. And I do not want to deliver it. 
I want nothing to do with fantasy football analysis in August because most of it is complete horseshit. The discussions are horseshit. The topics are horseshit. This is why that guy in your league that doesn't read Roto World finishes in the top three every year because he's not paying attention to all the red herring news blurbs that you're inundated with. The noise is clouding your judgment. He's flying through open sky. He sees players for what they really are, and his judgment is not clouded by the speculation of beat reporters that is based on nothing. But so many of you overthink every decision, and then when your draft is over, your team is worse than his. That's why you should be ignoring 99% of the news. And you could go even further and fade the news. You could do the opposite of what the news suggests. So when news comes out that Marvin Jones looks like the number one wide receiver for the Detroit Lions, that means you should buy more Golden Tate, not less. But there are kernels of information that are helpful. For example, when coaches tell beat reporters that they plan to use Bilal Powell as much as Matt Forte this year because Matt Forte is 31 and they want to keep him fresh and Bilal Powell was efficient in that role last year and they do not want to upset the apple cart with an offense that was good in 2015. That makes sense. If Bilal Powell was productive in a particular role in 2015, why would you change it just because Matt Forte has arrived with a redundant skill set? Instead, throttle down Matt Forte's touches and deploy him in an early down role and deploy Bilal Powell on third down and in the two-minute drill where he thrives. It never occurred to me that the New York Jets would allow Bilal Powell to keep his role one-for-one from 2015. But when multiple beat reporters are confirming sentiments from the coaches and the personnel packages they're seeing in practice, that's actionable information. That's the one unpopped kernel in the bowl of popcorn. Most of you do not have time to sift through the popcorn for that one kernel, so you're better off just ignoring the popcorn altogether and buying Sour Patch Kids and just drafting off of a board that has no news-related modifications. But if you are like me and you are compelled to read Roto World on a daily basis, I then have to go through this excruciating exercise of finding the kernel and then sharing it with you on the show. And I cannot wait until I am unburdened from this duty at the end of August and we can just start talking about football games. God, that day cannot come fast enough. But if you don't want to just trust me and listen to the show and you want to go out looking for the kernels, here's my advice. Only internalize news blurbs backed by coach quotes. So many news blurbs are supported with nothing but vapor. When you read the full analysis of the news, you walk away thinking, what is this based on? Is this just the opinion of a beat reporter? Is he simply speculating? Many times the answer is yes, and that is a useless news blurb because those guys don't know anything. But if there are quotes from coaches or even better players, then that is a news blurb that you should pay attention to, and then you can be discerning about it and decide, is this just coach speak, or is this something actionable? And that allows you to find those little Bilal Powell kernels. But the problem is, so much of the media trends negative. Charles Johnson talked about this on Twitter. He said the media only wants to focus on the negative, and that's so true. We talk about this with Jeff Janis. If you're not Sterling Shepard, 
and you don't have the hope of the franchise infused in you, if you're a late round pick, generally speaking, the analysis will trend negative. Charles Johnson could dominate a practice and they will only talk about the drop. This is the Jeff Janis corollary. So often beat reporters see what they want to see to confirm their biases. All the more reason to ignore them. On the other hand, if you go to playerprofiler.com and click on data analysis at the top, then you're only looking at stats and metrics. The data analysis tool allows you to select particular metrics by position and view a list of players that meet certain criteria. So for example, go to playerprofiler.com, click data analysis at the top, sign up for the premium subscription that is required to access it, and then click on wide receiver, height adjusted speed score, and college dominator. And you'll find all the receivers with an 80th percentile or above college dominator and height adjusted speed score. And what you'll see is an exceptional list of talents. And one of the receivers on that list is Michael Floyd. I've recently posted multiple Michael Floyd videos on my YouTube channel. Go to Roto Underworld Radio on YouTube and you'll see a handful of recent Michael Floyd related videos because Michael Floyd shows up in the analytical analysis. I don't know what beat reporters think about Michael Floyd and I don't care. My analysis is driven by the numbers, not by the storytellers. And the numbers come from the data analysis tools. So on playerprofiler.com, we're arming you with the same tool that I use before every show. If you want to protect yourself from being influenced by anecdotal bias, that's where you go. We also have an article section at the top. And if you're interested in writing for playerprofiler.com, email us rotounderworld at gmail.com. And a lot of writers are leveraging the data analysis tool to generate article ideas. They write the article, we tweet the article out from the at rotounderworld account. But one thing we do not do when we tweet out a new article is tag the player in the tweet. Because tagging players in tweets is lame. I saw this recently. Todd Gurley was tagged in a tweet from NFL.com saying that Todd Gurley should not be drafted in the first five players of a fantasy draft. And what happened? Todd Gurley took offense and replied and said, you're haters, as he should, because tagging players in negative fantasy football related tweets is lame. And if you're the NFL if you're the National Football League that these players belong to, and you're the ones tagging the player, that is perplexing to me. Why would you do that? One of the missions of the NFL is to support and market the teams and the players, not to tear them down, not to belittle them, not to just hit them with this gratuitous criticism out of nowhere. And you might say, well, it's just a fantasy football article. Clearly, he doesn't understand this is a fantasy football context. Well, if it's fantasy football, why are you tagging him then? Of course, he doesn't give a shit about fantasy football. He's Todd Gurley, for Christ's sake. Of course, he doesn't care about how many fantasy points he's scoring. So why are you tagging him in a fantasy football tweet? The players are proxies in this game called fantasy football. So when you mention them with their handle in a fantasy football tweet, you are personalizing a relationship that was a proxy relationship. The name Todd Gurley simply represents the stats that Todd Gurley, the running back, generates. In a fantasy football context, Todd Gurley's not really a person. He's just a collection of stats. 
But when you mention him in a tweet, you make it personal. And you make it personal in a fantasy football context that he doesn't even understand. And then you're surprised when he takes offense? When you add someone's handle to a tweet, you are making it about them, not their disembodied stat line. You should not be drafting Todd Gurley in the first round. Not because Todd Gurley isn't an exceptional running back, because you shouldn't be drafting running backs in the first round. But do you think NFL running backs understand 0RBNFL.com? What are you doing? The name Todd Gurley in a fantasy football conversation is simply a placeholder for Todd Gurley's stats. It's about the stats Todd Gurley produces in fantasy. So tagging Todd Gurley in a fantasy football-related tweet isn't appropriate, particularly by NFL.com. It would be one thing if the huddle was doing it, but this is NFL.com. Trolling is already a big enough problem on the internet. Trolling NFL players is a particular problem we talked about on this show. And now NFL.com is part of that problem. The last thing Todd Gurley needs is to be infused with anxiety because he was sideswiped by NFL.com on Twitter. I say all this knowing that I myself am a troll. I am a troll. I'm a subversive troll. I troll on my podcast, and then these podcast clips become YouTube segments on the YouTube channel. Again, go to YouTube, type in Roto Underworld Radio, and subscribe to the YouTube channel for the highlights across all my shows. I go out of my way to agitate people on this show. I absolutely do that. But I do not jump in their mentions to agitate them. Those are trolling waters I refuse to enter. But I think there is a time and a place to troll. I think that trolling via podcast is acceptable. I like to antagonize on this show. I like to entertain on this show. And I like to inform on this show. Many of you come for the information and then you laugh at a funny joke along the way. That's a win. Some of you come for the funny jokes and the histrionics, and you find some helpful nuggets of information along the way. Some of you tune in because I said something objectionable, and then by the end of the show, you're thinking, oh, wow, that was interesting, and I think I cracked a smile. Huh, I might subscribe to the show. Well, that's the formula. So yes, I am a podcasting troll. I'm the Gonzo Podcast. I know that's my identity. You come for the card tricks and learn something in the process. Because if you're just droning on for 30 minutes about metrics, your audience will never crest a thousand. I learned this. We've passed episode 200. We had many episodes where I just droned on with metrics. I didn't do any impersonations, no funny voices, and I antagonized zero fan bases. And our audience flatlined. And now we mix it up. And the audience is growing every day. So guess what? You're stuck with this incarnation of me. You are stuck with the obnoxious podcast Frankenstein that I have become.